Welcome to the Gentleman Ultra podcast. Uh, today, I'm delighted to be joined by the lead commentator for Paramount Plus and CBS Sports. And for those who follow the Serie A in America, of course, will know his voice as soon as he starts talking. Andres Cordero, welcome. Thanks for joining me. Oh, thanks so much for the invite. Um, really looking forward to this chat. Oh, no, it's, it's awesome. Much, much appreciated. And I'm really grateful for your time. Yeah. So you recently just came back from America, well, um, America, Italy, not recently, but yeah, was that your first time in Italy commentating live in, in the stadium? So last season, our, our first season uh, covering Serie A for Paramount Plus and CBS Sports was the first time that I know of that a an entire American crew um, called the game with the studio pit side with um, the commentators on site, just basically the entire production being done out of a stadium. Uh, as far as I know, was the first time for any American outlet. So we were really, really happy to do that. And uh, of all places, it was in San Siro, right, where big games happen. It, it, you know, it felt like a big moment. Um, it was, I think, the easing of also the uh, restrictions on uh, capacity at stadiums. So stadiums were starting to fill up. Like there was just, it was the perfect time to just really go and do something new. And I'd done, along with Matteo Bonetti, and at times at uh, BN Sports with Ray Hudson and Ian Joy and some others, um, so many Serie A games you know, off monitor that to, to actually be there in San Siro for a big game. The, I believe the first one was uh, Milan-Napoli, which, you know, we, pretty went big back one. For, we went back <laughs> for a Derby della Madonnina. And at the end of the year, we went back for the Derby d'Italia in Turin. So we got to see just three of the, the, the traditional, the historic matches that you want to see when you're in Italy. Um, and, I, you know, it was really well received. It, it was certainly... Uh, it just makes you hungry for more. You just want to do that every single broadcast now. And I think there's more of that to come uh, for us, but it's just sort of the realities of, of the way that the game is covered globally right now. Yeah. Yeah. Did you find yourself commentating differently when you're in the stadium as opposed to off, off a monitor? No, this is going to sound terribly conceited. Um, and I'm, I'm saying it's sort of embarrassed, but um, the overwhelming feeling was, you know, I belong here. Like this is, I, there was a, like the moment I, I felt the nerves a little bit. I'm like, yeah, you're nervous because this is sort of a big moment. It's a big game. You get a chance to, to call it, just call it like you would any other game. And I was, I didn't really think about it much until afterwards where I was like, that felt too normal. That felt too, you know, natural. The, the, the sense of the crowd, we looked to, to our right at one moment and the entire Kuduva is just, a blaze, right? It's just it's smoke and and fog and uh, flares, and you just got to like snap out of it. And oh, that's right, we're in the middle of a ninety-minute game, and you got to get back into it. But it really just it felt normal, it felt natural, it felt like the game the way we should be doing um, all of the games. And I think you know, little by little, we we get there. But uh, for me, it was certainly a milestone, and we got to do it three times. I think we'll do it a few more this year. Yeah, that's very cool, very cool. And like you said, three. Three of the big sort of standout games, if you if you wanted to choose them off the calendar, you definitely got got the right three to go to. That's for sure. Yeah. They weren't yeah. accidental. It wasn't as if like, ah, let's see what what's <laughs> happening this weekend in Serie A. So obviously, yeah. all meticulously planned. But they were, the clubs were great with us. Um, the 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 access they gave us was tremendous. Um, the I, I'm proud of the work that we did on obviously, and and uh, you know Marco uh, having him pitch side with uh, Bobo Vieri with. Uh, Mike Grella, uh, Poppy Miller, who's just been incredible as the host, uh, hostess. Um, it, it was just really good to see them enjoying themselves and, and sort of just having enjoying the moment. Yeah, just having fun. That's right. Yeah. So your so your background. So you've been commentating for you know twenty odd years, I think. From memory, the last time I think I heard you talk about it. Yeah. Um, for those that don't know, give us an idea of your background in in commentary and how you got your start in football. So I hope to be uh, doing play-by-play -play commentary for that long. I've been covering the game for uh, since 2004 um, at okay. a variety of uh, outlets. Um, I, you know, commentary. We we'll get to the commentary, I guess. But I started out at a channel called Gold TV, small channel that um, before you could get, you know, 
soccer regularly. You talked about, might have been off air, but you talked about how envious uh, you are of the way the game is is covered here. You can wake up and go to bed on a weekend watching soccer nonstop uh, in America, right? And so there's so much football. That wasn't the case back in 2003, 2004 until Gold TV launched. And when Gold TV launched, all of a sudden you had, you know, Serie A that wasn't on Rai, you know, on a choppy, uh, you know, reception. Uh, you had the <laughs> Bundesliga, you had La Liga, which is what I covered for 15 years of my career. I um, was covering Spanish football. Um, you had uh, soccer from Colombia, from Argentina, anything they could, you know, buy and, and the market wasn't what it is today, they would put on air. And I remember I used to do a show on Sunday nights. It was a two hour highlight show where literally anything we can get our hands off, you know, our hands on Guatemalan soccer, Salvadoran soccer, Slovakian soccer, whatever we could get videos of, we could, we would put up highlights of it, run stories of it. And that was a bilingual channel, uh, Go TV, where you had, you know, one video signal and two audio signals going out. So the, this, the two channels were showing the exact same stuff. If, you know, sometimes if you had people on camera, things had to be dubbed. And that's sort of where I got my soccer TV education with producers screaming in my ear in both Spanish and English, doing this sort of, you know, bilingual kind of thing at times. Um, and the influences that I had when I was there were insane because it was some of the top, in my opinion, top South American uh, soccer commentators, play-by-play, -play, color commentators, reporters. And these are guys who after Gold TV all went on to do, you know, big things at bigger networks, the ESPNs and the Foxes and whatnot. And so like, I got a chance to see what I liked about the way that American and British commentary um, was done. And what I liked about the way that Colombian and Argentine and Brazilian uh, commentary was how that was done and find the balance that worked for me, right? Like, um, mm. I'm an immigrant, um, Hispanic, obviously, find that excitement that the Spanish um, language brings with that balance and allowing the game to breathe and tell its own stories that you get from the more you know English side of things. That's where I think I tried to find my own voice in, in commentary, but it wouldn't be until I think 2013, 2014, where I was regularly doing play by play. And that was with a heavy dose of Serie A, um, but also, you know, sprinkling of Liga on and La Liga and everything mm. else. Mm. Did it, did it, how, so you, you mentioned like 2013, 2014, it took you until you were getting regular, regular matches. Is that when you so, started to feel, feel confident in yourself? No, it's because I had no, I, I had no idea I wanted to do commentary. It was the farthest yeah. thing from my mind. I, I actually were you, did not, were like, you writing before that or were you just like, like, like most everyone else, when you think about, you know, doing a radio show or a podcast or a, a 90 minute match, you think, what am I going to talk about? Mm -hmm. You know, so, so I, it was never even a consideration for me. I, I worked at first as a producer, uh, then as an on-air uh, person doing a, like a news show, a, a yep. daily news like show. Like a magazine show, show or similar. Yeah. Um, I figured I would do, you know, if I was going to, I wanted to be a writer and I would have a journalist job while I was, you know, being a writer. And then I fell in love with television instead. So I'm like, all right, cool. This is the same. I could use my degree in this. Um, and kept my options open. Never in a million years imagined that it would lead me to, to commentary until I was at BN, maybe my second or third year at, at BN Sports. Um, I had, uh, I was a studio host, basically not just for soccer initially at BN Sports, but also did like handball and other uh, sports. Um, I had been a panelist, uh, you know, reporter on site. I covered the World Cup in 2006 was my first assignment as a reporter, I had all this variety of roles trying to find, you know, what, what the thing I, I love to do the most was, but for the most part, I wanted to be paid for my opinion. I wanted to talk. And it wasn't until I said around 2013, 2014 at BN sports that uh, one of our commentators left and, uh, you know, opportunity w was there. And I remember it was Ian actually, Ian Joy, who works with us at CBS sports Paramount plus right now, who said, Hey, Dre, would you like to do this game with me this weekend? 
you know, I think you should give it a shot. I was like, no way. Uh, harassed me for about a week and a half. And it was a La Liga game. It was two teams I was very, very familiar with. Um, Rayo Vallecano and Atletico Madrid. That's a Madrid derby. I, you know, I loved Spanish football for so long. So finally said yes. And, you know, we got it done. And I was so bad. I, I walked out of that feeling like, okay, that was terrible. I, you know, I wanted to apologize to the fans of football because you know, it's my first time doing it. I never knew I wanted to do this. But walking out of that game, even knowing that that wasn't good enough, I knew that I had to get really, really good at that because I wanted to do that for a living. Like, forget the other stuff. Forget the, you know, I want to be around the game. I, I like to cover the game, but I felt like when you do commentary, the level of focus that you're giving the, those 90 minutes, as opposed to doing it as a reporter or, you know, watching with friends or even covering it professionally, there's a concentration there that only the players and coaches can exceed from what a commentator is, is what, the, what your obligation is to that game, right? At the very minimum, <laughs> you're paying way more attention to a lot more things than anybody else's. And I just, that, I felt like that was the closest I could get to, you know, the, the Ronaldinho's and, and the Ronaldo's and the, the, the Messi's is to be that intently focused on those games and tell stories about these players and about these leagues. And I find, you know, having done all of, we, I've done things from AFCON qualifying Wires to you know, the Africa Cup of Nations proper, um, to South American soccer. We did, uh, Matteo Bonetti and I, my commentary partner at BN Sports for Serie A, we did uh, Spanish Pro La Liga Promesas, something like that, where it was uh, under eight teams that, from Inter, from Barcelona, from Real Madrid. So I've covered soccer at almost every level, right? Xavi Simmons <laughs> played in that tournament when, when we did it. It was, it was based in Miami. And I found that if you can, that the game sort of speaks for itself. But if you can get people invested in the stories, you know, you can do a really, really good job um, just hooking people. And that was what I felt the job of the play-by-play -play guy was in live time, tell these stories, put, put a voice to it. Uh, and I just knew I, I wanted to be good at it. And I think, it, I think I am good at it now. I think it took a while to get there, to be honest. And it depends on who you ask, probably. But um, it's just been, it, it's basically my goal now is to be the best play-by-play -play commentator that I could be. And I, I know I'm not there yet. But I, I think I will get there eventually. Yeah. How hard was uh, how hard was it to maintain any sort of sense of uh, I guess like silence during that first sort of as you were learning in your first few games, or did you find that you were just talking relentlessly for for ninety minutes? Was it the the quiet parts? Was that the hardest bit? I mean, I was not not really a I don't know. It's a, it's a hard question to answer. I was sort of tormented by not feeling you know at, it takes a while before you i had my microphone voice obviously you know, i had i had my pacing i i'd done television for a long time but commentary is such a different animal right there's a there's such an there's a flow to the game that you have to match there's an emotion to the game that you have to match and i think that was the most difficult thing was finding that way to do it in real time because it's easy once you have the full uh, not easy but once you have the full set of information you know what the, the result was you know the whole narrative of the game it's much easier to construct it then but to do it in real time in a way that isn't uh, taking things for granted, that isn't talking down to your audience, that um, that is also unbiased or as unbiased as, as you can be, you know, objectivity is sort of a myth, but you do the best that you can with it. Um, <laughs> and, you know, that was a, a really fun challenge for me, but one that I just was so aware of how bad it was. And I thought, OK, I'm going to get the opportunities to to make mistakes, to, to learn from it, to find what the, the right sort of formula for me is. And to this day, I keep tweaking things, I keep changing things, I keep trying to, to continue to learn to do it better because I feel like there's, I have a really good opportunity. We, commentators in America, have a really good opportunity. If you hear an Italian play-by-play, -play, an Argentine play-by-play, -play, a Mexican play-by-play, -play, someone came along at one point and just absolutely crushed it. 
And then everybody wanted to sound like that person, right? And, and that just that style became ingrained, whether it was in Colombia or wherever it was, and they all had their own unique thing. But somebody came along the line and just sort of set the standard. And then I wouldn't call them clones, but people wanted to, that, that became what everybody wanted to sound like. I don't think that's happened in the United States yet. I think we're still a, a young enough soccer culture where um, somebody can be that person. And, you know, why not give it a shot to, to try and do that, to try and find a, a style that's uh, unique and interesting and that people want to emulate uh, going forward. So. That's how I think about my commentary. Yeah. So you mentioned as a side note there that you got to do a bit of handball. How fun is that? It's a great sport to watch. It, it blew my mind. Yeah, I knew very little about it, but it was actually my first opportunity to get on air um, at BN Sports was to cover the uh, it was a ha world uh, world handball championship out of Spain. Um, and it just, I you know, obviously I grew up with basketball and I thought this is European basketball before <laughs> or European basketball is a yeah. thing. Um, but no, I, I fell in love with it. And uh, those are really really good athletes i mean the, the yeah, physicality amazing, of these dudes yeah. they're trunks it's insane yeah so I, I um i was able to get tickets for the handball tournament for the sydney olympics like the 2000 olympics so not knowing <clears throat> excuse me not knowing what it was or well, i'd known what it was but had never seen it live just went along and bought a couple of tickets to i think it was like spain uh sweden uh, Croatia saw a few teams play and ended up spending two days at the venue. So it's back to back to back to get it's it's so much fun live. Yeah. It's so great to watch with the you know obviously with the huge crowds and people come from overseas. But yeah, and then you got to report on 2006 World Cup. You mentioned there that was a, a pretty gangbusters World Cup. I think was that your first ever World Cup and were you there live? Yeah, so I, I was there um, covering the United States, and it was just heartbreaking for U.S. soccer fans because it was not a very good World Cup for us. We got thrashed in the uh, group stage. I believe the only goal we scored was the own goal against Italy. Um, and, I, yeah, I was at the stadium for all three of those games, including that uh, heavy defeat to Czech Republic where Jan Kolder just did whatever he wanted uh, against the United States. So that did didn't go well. And then, and then in that same uh, World Cup, uh, because I was basically free of my initial responsibility, which was to do to cover the, the US, um, I had, I got myself, uh, you know, tickets in, in a train to go watch Argentina, Holland. And I thought this is brilliant, you know, Messi, Raquel Mayer <laughs> coinciding uh, in, in, in a national team. Um, but it was an absolute biscotto. Uh, they, they were already <laughs> both qualified. They just basically passed it around like a training match. It was so deflating after that group stage, <laughs> after, after the way I suffered through the USA's group stage. Uh, it was really deflating. The one moment I was looking forward to turned out to be an absolute uh, you weren't fortunate. You weren't fortunate enough to see Italy play, were you? <laughs> Imagine complaining about, you know, going into a World Cup, which is what I just caught myself doing. Uh, <laughs> nah, that's, you weren't fortunate enough to see Italy play, though, were you? Uh, yeah, the, the Italy-USA game, of course. Uh, that yeah. was dreadful. Uh, it was bloody. Yeah. It was messy. Uh, and we got a, the, well, we, the United States got a point out of it. Yeah, yeah. And, and did, you, did you stay around and watch any of the, other, the further, like the knockout stages? Yeah, I wasn't there till I think I, I left after the first knockout stage. I didn't stick around uh, throughout. Mm -hmm. I actually met up with my brother in Amsterdam. I think we were like planning some vacation and whatnot, which is what I'm looking forward to this time. This World Cup, I'm not working. Um, and I just I look forward to watching it like a fan with an adult beverage in hand uh, for a good yeah, you know, five six, weeks of action. Six weeks off, five weeks off. Yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> do you find yourself when you're watching a game now, do you find yourself making notes of things in your head or like commentating in your own mind? Or can you just sit back and turn it off and, and just watch the game, relax? It's hard. I either am like as, as switched on as I can be while not calling it, or I'm barely paying attention to it, right? And so a lot of the games that I'm watching now, I'm, I'm watching the ones that I'm not working on professionally, I'm watching while I'm preparing for another game. So, I, you know, I don't know when this is coming up, but on Saturday morning, I have um, 
uh, Napoli Sassuolo on Paramount Plus uh, and CBS Sports Network. And so I'll be watching, you know, Friday games uh, while preparing for those games. And how much can you really pay attention to a game when you're scrambling through notes and reading things and jotting down stats and trying to find storylines? And so I feel like a lot of the, the soccer that I'm watching that I'm not covering, I'm watching in that capacity, which is not really watching at all. It's just sort of there. And like I wonder background. how much it's like background noise, isn't it? Yeah, it's like listening to smooth jazz or something while you're studying. It's, it's a weird thing to, 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 to it's a weird way of experiencing it, especially for somebody that works in television. But it's just that's when I'm in front of a monitor um, and at work. If you uh, have but, kids, but, you know, if you have kids, you know what that feeling's like having it yeah. on in the background and a bit of background noise. <laughs> right. That's probably a lot. Uh, that's probably got a lot to do with it as well, too, that I have a five year old and a three year old now and they consume so much more of my time, whereas you know, before they came along, I was absolutely sick and just would watch mm. anything and everything that was on television. Uh, now, you know, things changed a bit and they're incredible. Um, the little one loves uh, to, to watch soccer and will come by and, you know, he wants to kick the ball around inside the house. And uh, it, that makes it much more fun to do that than to just sit in front of a screen and watch a game that you're not covering professionally. Yeah, that's, that's very cool. Yeah, very cool. Yeah. I know here because of the time difference, like a lot of the times when my kids are just waking up, the football's on, so it's, you know, midway through the second half. So eventually it becomes, you know, this is boring, turn it off. And, of course, we've got to turn it off. So that's why a lot of it becomes background noise or I always miss, miss chunks of the game. But, yeah. <laughs> so did your did your parents have a, a love of sport or a love of football either, either way? Do you think that's where it came from? So I got um, my athleticism and my love of sports from my dad, but my dad got his love of soccer from me, which is such a – different, you know, situation from how most people experience the game. It's we, I'm, I'm, I was born in Cuba. My family is Cuban. Um, left Cuba at age seven, spent a year in Panama, uh, uh, which is an interesting story. Uh, ended up a year later in the United States as an eight-year-old. And so soccer wasn't, my first soccer game ever that I played was that one year in Panama, right, like during recess at school. Mm. But it wasn't really a huge part of my culture until probably my late teens, where I just, for whatever reason, I thought, where has this been all my life? And realized, much like in commentary, started playing with, with friends and realized that everybody was so much better than me that I just had to go out and play every single day on bumpy pitches. And I just really fell in love with the game. And I had just enough bandwidth for everything before. And then soccer just consumed everything else. And my appreciation and love for, you know, the time that I would dedicate to NFL and NBA and all this other stuff just disappeared the moment that I fell in love with, with football. Um, so my... Dad didn't pass the game down to me. It wasn't my, my brother didn't play growing up. Um, I was the one who, once I, re I fell in love with it, I was like, well, look at this. You have to. And it gave us something to bond over. It gave us something to watch. Um, and now to this day, like everyone, you know, he'll, he'll see a good game that gets him a little emotional and he'll send me a text saying, hey, thanks for making me love this, you know. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't really part of my culture. Once I fell in love with it, I, I dove in headfirst. And it was shortly after that that I started working in it, maybe four or five years after I really got into the game. Mm, yeah. Yeah. So your parents left Cuba, Cuba and obviously um, headed for Panama for the year you mentioned there. So do you, you obviously remember that experience and what that was like leaving Cuba at that young age. So of Cuba, I have more, you know, memories that are like snapshots than, than like real memories. Um, it's just a lot that was happening, I guess, at that age, uh, getting uprooted twice from, from Cuba and from Panama. Uh, while we were in Panama, would have much more vivid uh, memories of Panama because that was super eventful. Um, the it was the Noriega the, the invasion to remove Noriega happened in 1989-1990 while we were in Panama and so where you know we're, we were supposed to be there to try and figure out you know when and how to eventually migrate to the United States where the rest of my mom's family had lived since the 1980s 
And so this invasion comes through and we're suddenly, suddenly pulled out of school and uh, can't sleep near the windows because a stray bullet may hit it. And there was just widespread looting. It was basically, it was literally uh, martial law for a while. And, you know, there were tanks down the streets. There were American soldiers. There was shooting at night. There were all kinds of like sort of terrifying things. Like it got to the point where, you know, they had looted all the stores, whomever was doing the looting, and they had started looting uh, residential areas, right? So they would go like building to building. So it was sort of a scary time for me and my brother and for my parents, but me and my brother were so shielded from it, so sheltered from it, that I remember that as like G.I. Joe walking the streets or how cool this, this tank is. You know, like there was never a moment of fear for me at that age. Like now that, you know, me and my, my parents have shared the stories and told us reality of what was going on, um, they shielded us so... Um, I guess lovingly uh, from all of that, that like it w didn't affect us at all. Like, my brother's birthday came about and, and we gave him like, I, they handed me these little like micro machines to give him for gifts. And like that this wonderful way of making sure that we were as little affected as possible while they must be just absolutely dying inside, right? We are a family of four sharing a two bedroom apartment with another Cuban couple who were strangers to us before that arrangement came to be. And here's my parents who were both engineers who had done great things in their careers in Cuba. My dad was an electrical engineer. My mom was a civil engineer and is now a structural engineer, although both of them are, are retired. Um, and so they leave this whole thing that they've built for themselves to then live in what turned out to be an unexpected war zone in, in Panama. And we were, me, my brother and I, completely just happy and mm. couldn't, just, it did not affect us in the way that I think, thinking back on it now, should have. Yeah. Yeah. And even now looking back on it, like the, I guess like the sacrifice they made and, and the, the, the efforts they went through to, um, to shield you from that and like having your own kids, like if you think back on like what they, what they did and like with your kids now to do something similar, it's yeah. like and, ama amazing, amazing. And, and my old man is as obsessive as I am, you know, when he does something, he does it like all in so I, I imagine what it was like for him to build his career to to have the success that he did and then to you know for the sake of us which is exclusively for the sake of us you know it's interesting everybody has a story about the moment that they decided enough was enough and they were getting out that, that they had enough of cuba that there was no life for them there and they moved in my parents case my mom didn't need that motivation my old man um was the one who was was more hesitant because my mom had her whole family here. So that, that was the big payoff for her was to be here with her family. My dad's family is smaller and, and based in Spain. And one day my dad picks me up from school or you know kindergarten or pre-K or whatever it was at the time. And I tell him, oh, I've learned a poem. And I recite the poem and the poem is just pure like communist Che Guevara propaganda. It was just about you know wanting to be like Che and yada yada. And that was a date for my old man where he was like, okay, we are, we're, we're done here. This is, this is the time to get out and sorted this out. And we, we left as a result of that. So I, I, it's hard for me to understand, you know, what that took, what, what that must have been like for him. Um, but it's the reason, both of them really, both of them, that I feel and I felt my entire life like I'm playing with house money. Like mm -hmm. they managed to give us this paradigm shift of life. And I felt like, cool, this is, this is house money. I can like pour myself into the things that I want to do. If I want to work in soccer, I can just pour myself into it. I'm playing with house money. I'm already at, at a plus from where I started. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And how, how do they look back on it now? Like seeing obviously, you know, your, their, their kids doing well in America and stuff. Do they reflect back on that time or are they just completely separated? And, and it's a, it's an old world. Like I know from my story, like, 
I've tried to talk to my dad about stuff that he happened. He came to Australia as a as a youngster and like moved over. But a lot of the times in Italy, he just says, "Oh, that's that's in the past now. It's Australia's my home now, and that and that's it." You know, like he doesn't look back and reflect on it a lot. Yeah, your parents like that as well. I think there's a lot of that actually in that, and maybe it's just how you hedge your emotional bet. You know, the fact that you, it, it's for different reasons, obviously. But um, they have no, absolutely no desire to ever set foot in Cuba again. They've, they have like locked away that part of themselves in a way that says, yeah, that was a past life. That was then similar to, to your father. Um, but I think they do, they do tell stories about it. They have friends here uh, in, in Miami that they've known since those days. And so there is still that, you know, the memories of it, um, but they have absolutely no interest in going back. It's, it's actually a trip that me and my brother want to plan for ourselves because we haven't been back. We, I left at age seven, he must've been five. Um, and so we've never set foot in that, in that country. And I think it's a, when I, when I go, it's gonna be sort of an emotional trip for me. It's gonna be a weird uh, experience, I think. It's not something I'm like really looking forward to where I would have gone already. Um, mm. I've seen images of what my neighborhood was like. It's, it's not great. Um, but yeah, I think it's it's going to be interesting to sort of reconnect in that way at some point. My my folks, um, they try not to think much about Cuba. And I think now what gives me so much joy is think about the sacrifice that they've made and, and the way that they almost had to restart, right? My, my dad was doing odd jobs when we got to the United States so that my mom could um, validate or revalidate her engineering degrees and sort of be a professional again. That was of huge importance to, to him. He started his own company. He was an electrical engineer, became a, an electrician and basically started over. And now mm. I see them both retired, leaving to Spain for six weeks at a time, you know, just, just seeing the world traveling. So I don't blame them at all for not being too nostalgic or thinking too much about the key where they left behind. This is the life that, yes, they might've done it initially for me and my brother, but it's the one they get to enjoy now. And yeah. that makes me emotional. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, now they can enjoy their life and and look forward, especially with grandkids too. That that's always uh, that always that always takes priority over over everything. <laughs> so so me and my brother are about two and a half years apart. My two boys are about two and a half years apart. Uh, me and my dad will sit down sometimes, just having a, you know whiskey or something, talking about life, and he's looking over at them, and he just feels like this is weird cyclical thing happening where it, it's he they even look a bit like me and my brother used to look when we were at that age. So he just, it's like he's seeing some sort of deja vu or some folding of time uh, and it's just happening all over again. Yeah. And listen, if I, if I turn out to be half the man uh, when it's all said and done that my father was and I did a good job. So I'm, I'm trying to be the same dad to those little boys that he was to me. Yeah. Yeah. That's, it's, it's nice to hear and that, that connection, you keep that lineage going, you know, like that's, that's very important. It's very strong. It's very it's like, you know, obviously having an Italian background, family is super important. Um, but having that connection between the generations and having having them spend time together, you know, like my grandkids, you know, my nephews and nieces, having the big family dinners still once a week with everyone there, like that's that's important to make sure that yeah. we're all we're all connected and we can pass that down, you know, between the generations. Like I always say to my kids, my grandparents, we used to go there once a week for dinner every week. Like I want I want to have my kids over for dinner once a week, you know, every yeah. week or, or whatever it may be, and then I want them to do the same, and then keep that bond keep that that connection together it's it's, it's super important yeah so you mentioned your this parents now, are travel, traveling there oh sorry what this was is that now a parent yeah this is now a parenting podcast i think they're, yeah. They're, they're <laughs> yeah so the um um well no it's just it's it's an awesome story like it and and regardless of how you see the world like to uproot your whole family and move them across. I feel like this is a, a reoccurring theme on this podcast because, you know, it happened to my family. It happened to a lot of the people I speak to, 
to yeah. uproot your family and move them, even if it's just across, you know, a hundred Ks of water or it's the other way, the other side of the world, like it's a massive sacrifice to make, to take your whole family. And in, in like this day and age, when we've got everything at our beck and call, it's very rare that you hear that, you know, we don't, obviously we don't need to do it given, you know, war, famine, food shortages, whatever be the case, but the way they did it then, it's just, yeah, it's it just, it blows me out. Like I, I still, I'm in awe of my grandparents, how they did it and how they moved halfway around the world with, you know, no language, no money, no job. Um, they just, or they all backed themselves, didn't they? You know? Yeah. People fear even the most, you know, minimal changes, like things that, that seem sort of so trivial and still like, you know, a big, a big change. And, and you'll explain away things that didn't go right. Oh, it's because I made this minor change or this other thing to, to just do this sort of thing to, to, as you say, just uproot completely and start over somewhere when you have not just the responsibility to succeed for yourself, but for the rest of your family and your children, if you're traveling with them. Um, it's just, I, you know, uh, I, playing it with house money. This yeah. is, it, it all, I get, as a result of that, I get to now, you know, travel to San Siro and call, you know, Milan Inter and go to Juventus Stadium and, and I could sacrifice or not sacrifice, but take the risks that I did to do something that most people think is just batshit insane to to take up for a living, uh, that there are so few jobs of it, that, that uh, the barrier entry pays so little, um, that it's because they made those sacrifices for us and gave us the starting point that I got that I thought, yeah, just, let's go after it and, and be, and, and that taught me also for my boys to whatever they show interest in, whatever the hell they want to do, just encourage it, nurture it, like how, let, tell, just make it known to them that they have to be the absolute best at it that they can be and they'll figure out a way to monetize it. That's yeah. sort of what my parents did for me and, and how I ended up here. Yeah, yeah. And then that's it. Whether you, you make it or not, if you, you have fun doing it and you're passionate about it and you give the absolute best of everything at it, then you, you can't be deemed a, a failure because you didn't get to a certain level, whatever it is, you did it, you, you did your best at it, go for it. Yeah. Um, so that was like travel in terms of travel, like I was going to say before, like, so was that your first time traveling to, to Italy? No. I, so I've been in Italy before, but it was the first time going to cover games uh, in yeah. Italy. Um, and it just, I honestly cannot wait for the next one. I'm just sort of sitting here. <laughs> <laughs> we just want to stare at the calendar and, and, and make it back because there's uh, I love City. Yeah. City uh, has this grip on me and, and I, I covered La Liga for way longer. La Liga is uh, the league that made me fall, really fall in love with football. Um, but I think City has a league that taught me much more about football. Mm -hmm. I think it's the ideal, the ideal style, brand, pace for someone who wants to study the game. Not just, you know, not just the stories around the game, not just uh, the personalities and whatnot, which, you know, the sort of common things that all sports, maybe all entertainment has. Um, but, but the game itself, the, the sort of chess match, if you will, of, of soccer, as, as much as that can be understood. City, uh, because of its rigidity, which some people think of as, as a negative, Max Allegri, for example, um, once said that you could write the starting lineups down on your hand in tactical formations, take a one-hour nap, wake up, and everybody's in the same positions. And he meant, it, he meant it disparagingly, but I think it's a really good place to understand the game and to understand the contrasts in styles and, and you know, how people, uh, how different managers will operate, more so than, for example, the sort of chaos and speed of the Premier League, without even comparing what's, you know, better or worse, what people care. Like, so I won't argue taste, but I just feel like City is the place that if you had to study football in university, they would be showing you City matches so you could really, really sink your teeth into it. And mm -hmm. I absolutely love that about it. Uh, it's not the, obviously, we don't, you know, have to 
everybody knows it's no longer the defensive Catenaccio style or whatnot. It's, it hasn't been for a very long time. All we needed was a good, a compelling title race. And the last few seasons have given that. Uh, you know, after the obviously nine years that Juventus just absolutely dominated the league, now you have potentially, you know, different champion every year, the way that, the way that it's going this particular season. And so to be back, to go to Italy to cover the games at this moment when the Serie A just seems to be on that ascendancy back, um, with a lot, long way to go, obviously, with you know, stadiums need to be renovated. We can get into all that, but um, it's just really nice. It's the perfect time, I think, to take people to the stadium, to the game, uh, as best as we can on TV. Mm. Yeah, and and how was it? Like I know, there's the old saying, you know, put two Italians in a lift and you'll get three opinions. But but I mean, what was it like to immerse yourself in like that whole culture? Because obviously you didn't arrive just on the, the morning of the match day, but to immerse yourself in that whole culture of being in the city and, you know, going able to pick up and buy a copy of La Gazzetta or... Corriere della Sera, whatever it may be, and and surround yourself with you know with football. Like as you know, you you go there and it's on TV. It's it's people are talking about it. The newspapers are in the bars. It's it's, it's everywhere. It not only is it everywhere, but it's it's also different from town to town. Right, the way that you know Roma lives a match day versus the way that like you know city like Milan lives a match day is dramatically different. Um, and I, I do sort of enjoy just seeing those changes, right? Like the, the change from one day to the next, from the, the day before the game, uh, you may hear some, you know, people talking about it here and there. The day of the game, it's basically the only thing uh, you hear in, in those sort of circles and those, and especially when it's the sort of games that we've been covering there, right? When you go for Derby de la Madonina, there's, and, and both teams are genuinely good and both teams are competing for a Scudetto. And I think, I think we were there for the, no, we were at the first uh, Derby d'Italia with zero uh, COVID capacity restrictions and so you can imagine what that atmosphere was like uh between inter and juve and just it, like i said it's the perfect time to be there to be covering those games i i'm also working with people who i genuinely just care about and, and want to be around right because in a short time Matteo, i've known for a long time we worked together at being sports so i'm not just experiencing these games and this, these um these cities as a soccer fan and as a fan of travel i'm also on a road trip with some of my favorite people on earth at the moment, right? So like Matteo and I have been friends for a long time, but I've become good friends with Mike Grella, with Poppy, um, with, with Marco. And there is that sort of camaraderie that we've built with each other. And so it is special to, to go and to work together in these different venues. Um, we have fun when we do it uh, in studio and off monitor, but to, to do it there, to do it in, in that capacity, uh, you know, to try and set new standards for the way that the game is, is covered, that it's not just, you know, the Premier League, but other big leagues that, that merit that coverage. Mm. And can you sense that? Um, can you sense that building in America and sort of like North America, that sense of community for Serie A and Italian football? Can you sense that growing? We're certainly on the cusp of something really special. When you consider, I mean, the best evidence of of it is that the rights for TV packages now, the rights for the TV deals are getting longer and longer. Uh, so MLS signs a ten year agreement with Apple TV. Uh, Paramount Plus, CBS Sports just renewed. Uh, the Champions League through 2030. La Liga signed an eight-year deal with ESPN. Uh, I think everybody's sort of bracing themselves for the potential, almost certainly, certainty, but certainly potential, of a soccer explosion after the 2026 World Cup. And so everybody just wants to like have their hooks into it. I, I can't say I could predict how it'll be, right? Because you think about how influential 1994 was for the United mm -hmm. States and how that launched Major League Soccer and really is probably, it marks the modern American soccer age, right? Mm -hmm. So this, it's hard to imagine what kind of impact this is going to have, but it does feel like this is a 
crazier, more of a soccer country now than it's ever been in my lifetime or my time here. And that's only going to sort of explode exponentially as a result of 2026. Yeah. And Italian football and Serie A in particular, can you sense that growing? You know, like, can you, can you, you, can you feel that, you know, even from on your side of the microphone? Yes, especially with if they continue to do as well in the Champions League as they currently are doing, right? So like Napoli are making people need to notice. Like Napoli are appointment viewing right now. Inter, with their games against Barcelona, you know, brought back memories of Jose Mourinho's Inter and sort of like defensive mindset that, that they did have then. Um, Juve obviously not uh, quite as well so far. Uh, Milan, uh, good opportunity. So like if these teams are competing at the biggest stage, I think that really does draw eyeballs in. I, I do think that um, that our coverage is as good as anyone's done it. And obviously I'm biased, but I think the coverage and the attention and and the resources that we've given to City A are we, that, that CBS Sports and Paramount have given to City A, I feel like part of the team, um, are at a different level from what most other rights holders in, in America have done with it. And I also think that we've got a lot more to do that, that we are going that we are sort of working on it to continue to, to, to raise the bar for how we want the league to be covered, not considering how other leagues are done, how other networks work, but to do something that gives the respect and attention to our league, our property that American broadcasters give to the NFL and to the NBA and to the major leagues uh, worldwide. So I think we're building toward that which is why, why you get games where our entire studio crew is pitch side in San Cito or um, at the Allianz Stadium. And so there's, I think, more to come in that regard. I believe the league is growing, and I think we're going to be a contributing factor to that, is my hope. You need to talk to your um, cousins at Paramount Plus in Australia and, and push push it down this way too. That's what, <laughs> that's what, that's what we need next. <laughs> Well, that's good. That's good. Any any uh, any Serie A coverage, any Italian football coverage, regardless of where it is, sharing it with those who can't see it, that's the best for everyone. That's all. That's all we want to Italian football to succeed and thrive and and keep getting better. Keep getting the better. game. The games. The games themselves are like I wouldn't touch a thing. Right. The the style of football that's being played right now in Italy, the excitement of the matches, the number of goals you're getting, the drama that's unfolding every single week, three, four times, right? We're seeing seven goal games, eight goal games, uh, you know, big lead changes. Uh, and it's not just the big teams. Like think about what Sassuolo, for example, did to all of the top six last season where they beat every almost every one of them, as far as I remember. Uh, uh, think about what Atalanta have managed to do now where they've been a top three team for so many years, have a little bit of a blip and are right back into it. So it's not just, you know, the seven sisters, the traditional powers. It's that almost, the, you know, the top two thirds of the table is playing an exciting brand of soccer. Uh, you watch Lecce play and, and Lecce give you joy when you watch them play. You think uh, Monza, since Rafael Paladino took over. Uh, these teams are really fun to watch at every single level. So I wouldn't change anything about the the football, the culture that's being played at the moment. It's more to do with you know the stadiums being full, the stadiums being modernized, all of the things that they're talking about that are sort of business and boring and not the game itself that need to improve for Serie A to just to be able to be looking on as good on screen as anything, Premier League, La Liga, anything else. Because if you gave me the choice of watching the, the particular style of soccer right now, I'm watching Italy above all else. Napoli has a lot to do with that. Yep. Yeah, that's right. Spot on. Spot on. All right, Andres, I'll let you go. Thanks very much for flying the culture flag and for joining us today. It's much appreciated. 
hey, I, I had such an appetite to do this. It's just like not do this sort of professional, like let's sit down and you know ask and answer questions and whatnot, but just really just have a chat about whatever popped up. Um, and so I, I, you know, I appreciate the invite and it's been delightful. So let's uh, keep in touch. Yeah, great. Thanks, thanks for your time. It's much appreciated. Cheers. Thanks very much for listening. Don't forget to rate, review and share the podcast where you can. Every little bit helps. Uh, enjoy your culture.